Rabbi Dr. Mark Shapiro is the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Chair in Judaic Studies at the University of Scranton and is the author of various books and articles on Jewish history, philosophy, and theology. Shapiro received his bachelor's at Brandeis University and his PhD from Harvard, where he was the last doctoral student of Professor Isidore Tversky. He received rabbinical ordination from Rabbi Ephraim Greenblatt. Rabbi Shapiro's writings challenge the conventional Orthodox understanding of Judaism using academic methodology while adhering to modern Orthodox sensibilities. His book, Between the Yeshiva World and Modern Orthodoxy, and The Limits of Orthodox Theology were both National Jewish Book Award finalists. His most recent book, Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History, released last year, documents the phenomenon of internal censorship in Orthodoxy. Rabbi Shapiro is a popular speaker, writer, and lecturer, and often leads Jewish history tours to Europe. Thank you so much for joining Valley Beit Midrash today, Rabbi Shapiro. Thank you very much. So today we're going to have the opportunity to speak... is of great interest to many people. There's all sorts of anecdotes about how uh, various people are afraid of what will happen to the community if the truths of the past are revealed, and therefore they take upon themselves to act as religious censors and thus spare the fragile religious feelings of the vast unwashed masses. Of course, I've never met anyone who regards him or herself as part of the masses. Everyone, I think, regards them to him or herself as able to handle the various truths. But there is indeed a self-appointed group of watchdogs that, much like with Pravda in the past, determine what the masses are to be exposed to in certain segments of orthodoxy. Now, in my book, I'm not concerned with censorship in the sense of banning of books or saying that certain things can't be read. That is a topic in and of itself I myself have written on it. My focus is more on the way of rewriting of history or altering our perceptions of the past. And what I try to do in the book, in addition, is to give examples where so-called kosher books, in order for them to remain kosher, have to be, quote, improved a bit. Now, I am not speaking about books that have been regarded as heretical or books that uh, people think should be banned, but standard books. Standard parts of the Jewish library, because of the changed religious climate, in order for them to remain acceptable, they need to be altered. And the altering must be done in such a way that no one is supposed to know that anything was changed in the text, because um, that defeats the whole purpose. The point is to fool people into thinking that what they are reading or seeing is authentic and to remove from books things that in the eyes of the censors will be problematic. Now, there are numerous small examples of this that abound. What I try to do in the book, however, is uh, different chapters, different themes, and give lots of examples. For example, Jewish law, the figure of Rabbi Koka, and I'll give you right now a few examples from each of these areas. Uh, I also show in the book that contrary to what's often portrayed today, Censorship is not something recently invented by uh, Kyrie Dean, the more right-wing element in orthodoxy. In order to block out the truths of the past, which will threaten their version of history. But uh, 
we find examples where non-Haredim do it as well. Now, this altering of the past is not simply because people are afraid of what will happen if the masses are exposed to certain things. I believe there is a more activist outlook. You didn't need the totalitarian states to teach us that if you control the past, you have a much easier time controlling the present and controlling the future as well. So let me begin with an example. There's a very large English book called Oz the Hadar written by a Rabbi Falk in Gateshead, England. Now this book presents what is certainly the most extreme views of Tzniyut, of women's dress and behavior, ever to appear in the English language. Rabbi Yehuda Hatzohenkin, in writing about this book and others of this genre, though this is the one in English, said that, quote, they prohibit a woman from standing out and from being outstanding. Because everything that a woman wants to do, if she becomes known for it, that'll be a violation of Sneut. This book is also accompanied by a book of diagrams, which show in minute detail what is permissible and what is not when it comes to women's clothing. Of course, there is a big problem with a book like this. Since anyone can look at the numerous pictures of great rabbis and their families, their wives and daughters, and see that they are not dressed in accordance with the prescriptions of this book. For example, you will find great rabbis' wives whose top button is opened, even though this book says it's absolutely forbidden. And the problem is obvious. People will see pictures of how the great wives of rabbis in the past dressed and will assume that they can do so as well. After all, the ultimate validation in traditional society is that the great rabbis of the past permitted it. With such an approach, Falk's book with those new standards will be severely compromised. And therefore, Falk has a suggestion, which he tells you explicitly in the book. Either omit the pictures entirely, or simply touch them up. That is, alter the pictures. He says that uh, these pictures are dangerous because uh, it shows that uh, people are not acting in accordance with what Falk thinks is appropriate. And he doesn't even consider the fact that uh, the great rabbis of the past would have a different perspective. Instead, he wants it altered and removed from the public eye. But I begin my book by referring to that. Let me give you some other examples in the different categories. So since I just mentioned uh, pictures, let me tell you about another example. Um, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, of course, is a very important figure, very well known, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. There was a biography written on him by a former Chabad person named Deutsch, Charles Shimon Deutsch. And lo and behold, he uncovered some early pictures of the Rebbe in Berlin and uh, when he came to America, in which the Rebbe is not wearing a kippah. He's not wearing a head covering. Let's talk about the picture in Berlin, which is from the University of Berlin. Now, this makes perfect sense in the context of its time. Orthodox Jews, even the most Orthodox Jews in Germany, did not follow the practice of covering their hair with a kippah at all times. That used to be a common practice uh, in, in the Sardic world, in places in the Ashkenazic world as well. Today, it pretty much only survives among the Syrian community. But uh, for people today, seeing the Lubavitch Rebbe without a head covering, that obviously would be problematic, because as Deutsch shows in his book, there's another picture of the Rebbe without a head covering, and that, when it was reprinted, the head covering was added to him. And I 
cite a number of examples of this where head coverings, quote, were added on. In fact, there's a famous example of a responsum where the great Rabbi David C. Hoffman, who was the most important halakhic authority in the early 20th century in Germany, he discusses this German practice of not covering one's head. In fact, he tells us that in the school of Samson Raphael Hirsch, which was the Orthodox Day School in Frankfurt, the students did not cover their heads for the secular studies, only for the Jewish studies. And in the book, I, I discuss the context uh, of this practice, but I also show, when I, I actually have the picture of it, how when David C. Hoffman's book of responsa was reprinted about 15 years ago, that entire responsa is simply cut out. It's whited out. Again, people publishing these works or their, uh, their mentors feel that uh, such information would be dangerous for the masses. And in this case, not just the masses, because the people reading this volume of responsa would be, uh, have to be Talmudic scholars. They don't want people to know that there was a time that Orthodox Jews had a different practice, something which today doesn't fit in with their mindset. I then move on and I discuss Jewish ideas, theological ideas. Now that's obviously an area where people who want to insist on conformity, conformity in belief, would be interesting in shutting out alternative views. And one of the examples I discuss actually is not a recent one. It goes back to the 19th century. There was a, uh, a commentator on Maimonides' Guide for the Perplex, known as Profiat Duran, and the name of his Hebrew name and the name of his commentary is called Aphodi. And in discussing Maimonides' famous comments in the Guide, how certain incidents in the Torah and the Bible as a whole did not happen in reality, but only happened in visions, it seems, at least to that Maimonides is hinting to other matters as well. Maimonides mentions the story of Abraham and the angels coming to him at the beginning of Parshat Vayera, that that uh, happened in a vision. He mentions that the story of Hoshcheda and the harlots, that happened in a vision. And Aphodi tells us that uh, Maimonides is also hinting to us by one of his comments that there is more. And Aphodi identifies the more with the story of Jonah and the fish as being... Uh, only happening in a vision. I don't think that was so radical. Uh, what, what's radical is that he says the story of the binding of Isaac, that too did not happen in reality, but only happened in a vision. This is what Aphodi says, and his comment appears in the 1500s, the 16th century printing of the guide, and is reprinted over and over again. Until in the 1870s, when the edition of the Guide for the Perplexed and the commentaries is reprinted again, and that is the that version is the standard version of the commentaries. You go into any Jewish bookstore, you can find it. And it's the only edition that's out there. If you look, if you compare the original printings to the one that's available today, you will see that the comment I just mentioned, where Aphodi says that the, the, the vision, first of all, the Jonah story and the vision of uh, the Akeda story happened in the vision, it's been completely removed. There's no ellipsis, there's no indication anything was taken out, and that's what uh, makes for a successful censorship. And no one spoke about this passage and controversies in recent years over interpreting the Torah in a non-literal fashion because no one knew about it. As I said, that's why it's such a successful censorship. Uh, you might be wondering, well, why not just take, uh, remove a Foley's commentary in its entirety? 
he says something heretical, that the, the binding of Isaac story never actually happened, just remove it. Well, um, it's not so simple, because um, my, the Foley's commentary is sort of like Rashi on the Chumash. You need it. It helps you understand Maimonides. And there's nothing problematic in general with a Foley's commentary. And therefore, the best solution would be to simply remove it, as was done, and no one would be the wiser. Now, right now, I don't want to talk about whether a Foley is correct in his understanding of Maimonides. I actually argue that he's not, that Maimonides regarded uh, the Akedah as an actual story. What's important for us now to recognize, however, is that uh, something with a viewpoint which was ex regarded as an acceptable viewpoint in the 16th century, the 17th century, when we get to the end of the 19th century, when the, when the guide is reprinted in Eastern Europe, this was no longer an acceptable viewpoint, and therefore it had to be deleted. And this is a pattern repeated again and again. I mean, since I just mentioned Maimonides, let me turn to Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. I have an entire chapter on Hirsch dealing with uh, censorship related to him. And uh, one of the most interesting ones has to do with his book, The 19 Letters, where he's very critical of Maimonides, seeing Maimonides as uh, being at fault for bringing Greek ideas into Judaism. And... Uh, in the translation that appeared in Israel of the 19 letters in um, the 1940s, this passage appears, as we would expect. However, I show in the book how in the 1960s, when the text appeared again, this entire section is deleted. Something which was kosher 20 years before has now been removed. Now, I speculate as to why that is the case. Uh, uh, although it might strike people as strange, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch has become accepted in the right-wing Haredi world. And, uh, and there's reasons for that, which we can't go into now, but I discuss in the book. However, in that world, it is unacceptable for Samson, for anyone, including Samson Raphael Hirsch, to criticize Maimonides in such a harsh fashion. So therefore, we see it completely taken out, removed, and I document other examples of how Samson Raphael Hirsch has been censored in order that he fit in better today. Let me give you another example. And in this example, we see it's not just Haredim who are engaged in this sort of censorship, although to be sure, they are the major culprits, and they're totally upfront about doing it, usually, usually at least, uh, because of what they regard as uh, their role in presenting texts. But if you, Maimonides wrote a letter, called the Letter to Yemen, in which he was responding to Jews who were having difficult times there. And, uh, no, I'm sorry, not the letter, I don't mean the letter to Yemen, I mean the uh, letter on uh, martyrdom, in which Jews were being forced to convert. And Maimonides argued to them that uh, they didn't need to martyr themselves because with Islam there's no uh, foreign worship and they, it's unluckily permissible for them to outwardly convert and inwardly keep Judaism. Now it so happens that there's a rabbi we don't know much, we don't know anything really about him, other than the fact that my mom did think highly of him. And he ruled that all those Jews in Spain and Morocco who were living outwardly as Muslims and inwardly as Jews uh, were terrible sinners. Maimonides responds to this rabbi and says that his arguments are foolish and that their meaninglessness should be apparent, even for the, uh, so, uh, even for the uh, women who lack sense. Now, that's not necessarily a good thing to say about uh, women. Um, we find other examples where Maimonides puts women in the category of uh, women, the children, the ignorant. 
Should it therefore surprise us that in the 1970s, right in the era of women's lib, women's lib when this um, text was translated by Leon Stitzkin, a professor at Yeshiva University, the passage about women was removed, and instead, instead of women, light-headed women, it was substituted with unenlightened, I think the word dating was unenlightened people, or something along those lines. Uh, so here you have an example of someone not from the Haredi world thinking it's okay to censor Maimonides, what Maimonides really said, because of how some people would react today upon reading it. The truth of the matter is, and I make this point in my book as well, is that Schmitzkin missed a wonderful teaching opportunity because uh, Maimonides actually diverges from a standard view regarding women, namely that women were uh, inherently inferior to men intellectually. That was a very common view, and that was Aristotle's view as well. Maimonides diverges from that, and he actually thinks that women intellectually can achieve just like men can achieve. They can understand the secrets of the Torah. They can become prophets. They were living in a Taliban-like society, and because of that, therefore, um, they didn't have any learning. But there was nothing inherently um, defective about them. In fact, Maimonides breaks from Aristotle, who actually believed that women are defective males. In context, Maimonides actually turns out to be one of the most progressive, if not the most progressive, of all the medievals when it comes to women. It was just in the context, in the, in the context these women lived in, though, they're in the Taliban-like society, they never had any access to Torah learning. I have another chapter uh, of the book dealing with Ruth Cook. Ruth Cook is a very interesting figure because um, he is subject to more censorship and distortion than anyone in modern times. He's subject to censorship by his opponents, those who want to show that he was not a major Torah figure, those who want to rewrite the past, whereas in his day he was a leader of the Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem with only a small segment not accepting his authority. Um, that, that, that fact wants to be uh, removed from history today, and how do you do that? You do that by removing approbations from Ruff Cook. So by Cook wrote more approbations to books than anyone else until uh, recent years made printing cheap. Uh, rabbis wanted Ruff Cook to uh, grace their works with his haskama, his approbation. So you have today, and I give examples in the book, uh, numerous uh, books that are reprinted. If, re if the text is reset, it's very easy to delete the, the, the uh, approbations. However, if it's done by photo offset, you have to simply wipe them out. And I discussed that. However, there's another form of censorship with Rabbi Cook, and that is uh, his own students, his own followers, who are worried that some of his more radical ideas will create even more problems for their teacher. They take it upon themselves, with good intentions, of course, but they take it upon themselves to cover up some of, of Cook's ideas to keep them hidden and secret. And yes, to censor of Cook's writings, not out of opposition, as the former group did, but rather because they hope that Ruff Cook will be accepted, his ideas accepted to a wider range of people, including in the more right-wing circles, and therefore they feel it necessary in order to achieve that goal to cover up some of his ideas. I also discussed title pages at Strange title pages from contemporary personal conceptions, Puritanic, the whole notion of puritanical sentiments, that is, texts that appeared and pictures that you can find in old books that today are not regarded as appropriate, 
either the, because there are women in various states of undress or certain languages used that is not appropriate, not thought appropriate today. So these have been cut out, been rewritten. In one example, a woman was even turned into a man. I show that. Um, and uh, in all of the chapters, I deal with, uh, you know, the reasoning, why, what led to the censorship. And finally, in the last chapter, I discuss, uh, is truth a value? That is, uh, what do the people who are involved in this rewriting of the past for the sake of the present, are there traditional Torah sources that can be cited in support of this? And uh, what I tried to do in the last chapter is show, although obviously I have my own perspective and I don't believe in any form of censorship, that you actually find examples from the Talmud and rabbinic literature that if people were interested, could give them carte blanche for not revealing the entire truth and for even covering things up and uh, recreating a, uh, a mythical historical past. What I, what I think I accomplished in the last chapter is to show that the matter is complicated that uh, traditional Jews have uh, not spoken in one voice when it comes to the importance of truth. So with that, I, uh, I hope I've uh, given some insight into my new book and uh, look forward to hearing from anyone who has uh, comments on it after reading it. Absolutely fascinating insights. I want to encourage our listeners to go to Amazon and pick up Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History. Thank you so much, Rabbi Dr. Mark Shapiro. Thank you.